Welcome. Get your uh, Bibles out if you've got them, please. We're going to be looking in the script as usual, right? We're at Oakland's Bible Chapel. Bible is our middle name. Let's get the books out. Get your iPad out or your phone or whatever. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, several passages today. If you've been here uh, at all before, you know we are in the middle of a study on the book of Revelation, actually, and we've been in it several weeks now, and uh, we've been uh, working our way through uh, chapter by chapter. And today is not going to be any different. If you want to turn there, it's the last book in the Bible, page 1031 in my Bible. We're going to be looking at chapter 7 today, finally. After several weeks of uh, chapter 6, we are going to move on to chapter 7. But before I do that, I have to explain a couple of things. I I hope you don't mind about that, because if we just jump into chapter 7, it's going to be a little weird, because it is one of the more obscure passages of Revelation. So... What we know so far is where we're going to start, okay? What we know so far is that God created everything in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and all of this isn't an accident. It has been created for a reason, and there's a purpose for all of it. Unfortunately, uh, there was a problem that cropped up right away, and the people that God created rebelled against him and disobeyed him, and they uh, became a sinful, rebellious people, and the sentence upon that was death. Death is the penalty uh, for sin, but what God does is in the, that moment when judgment should have fallen, God's like, okay, wait, time out. We're going to take a break here. Everybody leave. Get out of my garden. We're going to reconvene this situation again one day, um, and my judgment is going to be suspended until we do. And creation moves on. And centuries later, God chooses a man, a man that lived in the modern-day Iraq area. It's Ur, uh, near Babylon, a guy named Abram. And uh, Abram becomes Abraham, and God makes Abraham and his wife, Sarah, a great, uh, a series of great promises. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, he says to Abram and Sarah. And of course, uh, Abraham, or Sarah's, you can read Sarah's reaction. Sarah's like 90 years old, and Abraham's, you know, uh, just as old. And Sarah just like laughs, like, yeah, whatever, God, that's not going to happen. I'm old, and I've never had children, and uh, God has other plans, of course. And so he creates um, his nation out of nothing, really, by giving Abraham and Sarah some offspring. And uh, their grandson is a guy named Jacob, and Jacob inherits all the promises that God had given Abraham of a great nation, and a nation that would bless all nations, and nations that would be his own nation amongst all the other nations. And Jacob's large family ends up going down to Egypt to live. That's a whole story in Genesis, the story of Joseph. Jacob's 70 to 100 people move down to Egypt to live with Joseph. And for 400 years, they grow and thrive and grow into a very numerous people, actually a nation, and they become, unfortunately, enslaved to the Egyptians. So God's people, numerous, but enslaved in Egypt. And then God sends them a deliverer, just like he promised. And this guy, Moses, is born. And Moses ends up, by the call of God, going into Egypt and leading God's people out of slavery, out of to towards the land that had been promised to him. 
this promise of redemption rings through the whole Bible, right? It, it, it never stops being talked about that our God is a God who saves. The, the God of the Bible is the God who redeems and restores and he rescues no matter what's going on. And it starts right here in the beginning when Moses is going to lead the people of God out of the promised land. Exodus 6 says this, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now, just like God, it's not like God forgot. He's just like, I know what's going on, and I know what I said. I remember what I told Abraham in the beginning. Moses, therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Okay? Right off the bat, like God's got big plans for his people and big promises about what he's going to do. We're not, we don't have enough time to go through the whole life of Moses and all the wandering around, but at the end of his life, Moses says some very, very important things. Moses isn't going to go into the promised land. He's, he's not going to be able to lead them. Joshua is going to do that. Moses is going to die before that's accomplished. But before he dies, he has a couple of things to say to the people of Israel. And if you're not, if you're not familiar with um, what's called the Song of Moses or the Blessing of Moses, you should be. It's one of the core prophecies of the Bible, the core statements about God and who he is and what he's doing in this world. Deuteronomy 32 is the song of Moses, and Deuteronomy 33 is the blessing of Moses. It's the last thing Moses says before God takes him home, and it basically tells the future of God's nation, and it concludes with the promise of God coming to rescue his people. Deuteronomy 33, this is part of the blessing of Moses. It says, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. That's all just the area of the Sinai Peninsula, the Sinai Mountain, the area around Mount Sinai. The Lord came from Sinai, dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. There is none like God, O Jeshurun. Jeshurun just means Israel. There's none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. That's a lot of stuff. God, you've got to read the whole thing. There's a, God knows what's going on. He's like, hey, I know who you are. I know this is going to be a problem. I know you're going to fall away. You're going to rebel. You're going to follow other gods. I am going to judge you for all of those things. But in the end, I'm coming to save you. I'm coming to save you from your enemies, and I'm coming to save you from your sin. 
Well, David is kind of the next main guy on the scene. Several hundred years later, the kingdom of Israel, the people are in the land. The kingdom is prosperous and powerful. And David is reigning over the greatest era that the Israelite, that the nation of Israel has ever known. David, God's chosen king. God makes David some promises. Not only did God choose David by himself, had to go find him in the pasture in the wilderness and get him onto the throne. God says, hey, look, David, uh, your, your throne's going to last forever. One of your descendants is going to sit on this throne for eternity. And no matter what it looks like, David, when this comes, I'm going to save my people, and I am going to install them as a great nation, and I am going to put one of your descendants on the throne forever. David writes about all kinds of stuff like this. In Psalm 18, we read this. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountain trembled and the quaked because God was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his cloud. The Lord thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth his lightning and routed them. The channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your nostrils. That's just a. David goes on and talks about how, all despite all that, God God's going to God's going to come back and He's going to rescue. Yes, He is going to judge, but He's going to rescue His people. God made a lot of promises about rescuing His people. Even as the nation is falling apart because of their rebellion, they are sacrificing their children on altars. God is promising rescue and deliverance for his people. Isaiah writes, right at the time, Isaiah's prophesying, like, he's got to repent. God's going to wipe you guys out if you don't change this program you're on. And then he says this, who is this who comes from Edom? That's just south. Uh, In crimson garments, from the south, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger. I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me i trampled down the peoples in my anger i made them drunk in my wrath and i poured out their lifeblood on the earth this is just everywhere in the old testament that god is coming to punish his opponents and the oppressors of his people and save them last thing isaiah writes after all that one of the last things he says oh that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. And of course, 
God's judgment falls on his rebellious people and they are scattered and taken captive to Assyria and to Babylon and even Persia. Which brings us to uh, Daniel. Uh, there's a guy uh, in the Bible named Daniel. He lived after Isaiah. He's at the, uh, lived in Babylon where the, he was taken captive as a young boy. And he reveals a lot about the future plans of Israel. God tells Daniel a lot about his plans for his people and for his world. And in, in Daniel chapter 9 especially, God lays out the future of his people for Daniel. And this is where a very well-known, famous uh, prophecy, uh, Daniel's 70th week, which really is the final seven years leading up to the return of Christ. That's what Daniel writes about. It's called Daniel's 70th week. And what's going to happen as in this lead up of God coming to save his people? Well, well we'll get more into that, uh, what it is, because really the book of Revelation is the explanation of Daniel's 70th week, as we have talked about before. But fast forward just a little bit, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they go back and lead people back to Jerusalem from the exile. They rebuild the city, they rebuild the temple, and 400 years later, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. But his arrival looks nothing like what Moses or Isaiah described the, the God's coming to his people would look like. Now, that's confusing probably for all of the people that were expecting God to come down with fire shooting from his hands and devouring his enemies, calling lightning and hailstones down from heaven in judgment. It didn't look like that when Jesus came the first time. Jesus was born in a barn, or not even a barn, outside of a barn. Nobody knew. But that's not because God changed his mind, right? It's because it wasn't time for those things to happen yet that Isaiah and Moses were talking about. Jesus does not teach that Isaiah and Moses were wrong about what the coming of God for his people was going to look like. He affirmed it. He just teaches that there's more to the story to happen first before all of that happens. Jesus is very clear. Those days are still to come. The fulfillment of all of those prophecies is still on the agenda, just not yet. Actually, you know what? Have a, let's have a look at Matthew 24. You got your Bibles there. Just go back a few pages. Um, Matthew 24 in my Bible is page 830. Matthew chapter 4, um, Jesus gives a very long explanation about some things. This is, this comes up, this is after several chapters of the leaders of Israel trying to discredit Jesus, trying to prove to everyone that Jesus is saying things that go against what the scripture says. The scriptures teach, like, it could be, like, hey, you can't, you can't be God because God's coming back, it looks like this. It looks like what Moses said in his blessing. When God comes back, it looks like what Isaiah said. That's not what happened because God came once, right, for the Israelite people. He descended on the mountain of Sinai. That's their first coming. And they're like, they would all agree God's coming back. But it looks like the, when he came the first time. Anyway, that's a, a much bigger topic. So they're trying to discredit Jesus of whatever um, way possible, trying to prove to everyone that's listening that Jesus is saying things that go against Scripture, to prove that Jesus is not from God. Okay, this is uh, Matthew 24 occurs during Passover week, right? Just a couple of days before Jesus is crucified. He's already made a gigantic scene in the temple, right? Remember, he comes into Jerusalem. He's like, how can you do this in my father's house? And he's kicking out all the money changers and lenders there and saying, this is not a, uh, a scene, uh, a den of robbers is what he called it. 
And then in chapter 1, all the people begin, or sorry, all the leaders begin challenging Jesus on what he is teaching. He, he tells them a couple of parables then about themselves and, uh, and their wickedness and their lack of understanding what God is doing. And then Jesus delivers one of his favorite lines to these guys. These guys who are supposed to have the Bible memorized, he's like, have you guys never read the Bible? Can you, just the steam coming out of their heads, it's a suggestion that they don't know the Bible up and down. It's pretty much a rhetorical question too, right? Jesus is like, you guys may have the Bible memorized, but you still don't understand it. Then he says this, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Hmm. Then Jesus, in chapter 22, goes on to point out just how mistaken the leaders of Israel are in their understanding of what's going on and what God is doing. Then all of chapter 23 is basically Jesus warning the people not to listen to their leaders. Don't, don't follow the scribes and Pharisees, folks, declaring to the people of Israel, Israel, your rulers are wicked and deceived, and they have no idea um, what they're talking about. Well, if you, if you haven't guessed, uh, Jesus was somewhat unpopular with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, anyway, Jesus uh, finishes with this in Matthew 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus explains to his disciples what that is going to look like. And he explains to his disciples all that Moses and Isaiah said about God coming to rescue and redeem his people, it's still going to come true. And he reaches back to Daniel and Daniel's prophecies to explain. He tells them the story of Daniel's 70th week, basically. And you can see in Matthew 24, it starts uh, in verse 4 there. And he says a bunch of things with wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and that kind of stuff. These are the beginning of birth pains. So it's going to start with birth pains, wars, earthquakes, famine. That's going to be followed by what's called the time of Jacob's trouble. You can see uh, there, they will deliver up you up to tribulation, put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations which will lead to God coming back to save his people from that great trouble that they're in. Because you read in Matthew 24, uh, 21, it says uh, this, For then, after the birth pains, there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Jeremiah 30 describes it this way, Alas, the day is so great there is none like it. It is... A time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Daniel wrote in Daniel 12, When at that time Michael shall arise, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Jesus is just saying here what the prophets have already been saying for centuries. But then Jesus goes on to actually describe a little more. Because the birth pains lead to Jacob's trouble. And then Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29 and 30, 
immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The great tribulation for God's people that has been promised will be followed by cosmic signs. Which will be followed by the appearance of the sign of the Son of Man. And when Israel sees the sign of the Son of Man, all of Israel will mourn. We talked about this last week. It doesn't mean... uh, This is an allusion back to Zechariah and to the story of Joseph where God's people recognize what they've done. All of Israel will mourn when they see this sign. They're going to mourn their rejection of him just like Joseph's brothers mourned their crime against their brother Joseph. And then they will see the Son of Man coming. What what is Jesus saying here? This is the thing. Jesus calls himself something in the third person over and over and over in the Gospels, right? God, it's kind of weird when we do it. If I call myself Dan when I'm in a conversation, people are like, you're kind of weird. Um, this third person reference stuff. Um, I have friends that do that, though, but I don't. And, uh, but Jesus does it all the time because what he says is he refers to himself in the third person as the son of man, right? When he talks about the son of man, he's talking about himself, right? So what is he saying when Jesus says, and then they will see the son of man coming? Then they'll see me, is what he's saying. They're going to see me. My sign is going to appear, and then they're going to see me. Remember what he said? Matthew 23, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is just saying there is coming a day when Israel will find themselves at the end of their rope. They'll be being crushed under persecution and tribulation that is unprecedented in its ferocity. A people on the verge of total destruction. But God is watching and he has made them some promises, and my Father will not let that happen. God is going to act. And at that time, my Father is going to shake the heavens and shake the earth, and then Jesus says, my sign will appear in the sky, and Israel will begin to realize who I am, and they will begin to understand what they have done, and they will begin to mourn. And then they're going to see me, and they'll see me coming, and they'll see me coming like Moses described I was coming, and like Isaiah described I was coming, like with power and glory to save my people. What's Jesus going to do when he comes back to his rebellious people? What's he going to do with the people who rejected and killed him? He's going to do what he's wanted to do for a long time. What did Jesus say he wanted to do with his people? We just read it. What did Jesus say to the crowds and the leaders after he was done rebuking them? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together? And at the end of the age, the sign of Jesus is going to appear 
and Israel will mourn in regret, and Jesus will arrive, and he will finally do what he's been waiting for for a very long time. He will send out his angels, right in verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the end of the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. In the end, his people will see him and they will mourn with regret what they have done and they will call out to him and he will answer and he will gather up his people in his arms and he will never let them go again. That's the story Jesus is telling. Now, all of that is the introduction to Revelation chapter 7. Okay, that might be the longest intro I ever gave to a passage of scripture, but uh, it's, it's really important that we understand the story because we, it, it's getting, uh, this is one of the more obscure passages that we're going to get into here and we have to understand what's happening. In our study of Revelation, we made it through the first six chapters and in chapter six, uh, as we watch the scene in heaven, Jesus is opening the seven sealed scroll that he has taken from the hand of his father and as those seals begin to be broken and pulled off of the scroll and the scroll begins to be opened, we see a series of events. Now, in the first six, sorry, in, in the chapter six, uh, we watch the scene in heaven and on earth. We were seeing Jesus open the seal and then something either on earth or something in heaven happens. And Jesus, um, it's, it's very similar, sorry, in what was given already in Matthew 24, the same pattern given again. The first four seals um, unleash terrible distress and persecution on the earth. And then the th fifth seal is the scene of the martyrdom of people dying for their faith during this time. And then the sixth seal is the cosmic signs and the reactions of the inhabitants of the earth. And the cosmic signs of Revelation chapter 7, pretty much exactly the same as the cosmic signs Jesus described in Matthew 24. You would think so because it's the same guy given the description, right? He's probably going to say the same thing. He's not, again, God doesn't change his mind. And that brings us to chapter 7 and the seventh seal. Well, if you've got your Bible open, you'll see actually it doesn't bring us to the seventh seal yet. There's some other things first. The seven, John doesn't see Jesus open the seventh seal yet. He writes about that later in the next chapter, and chapter 8 kicks off with the opening of the seventh seal. First, though, Jesus is going to show John a couple of other things that are happening during this time. During the time of the unfolding of the first six seals, Je Jesus is like, okay, wait, pause. Remember how we talked about one of the easiest ways to figure out what's going on here is just picture Jesus teaching John by video. And just, okay, we're going to show you that clip, and then wait a second, I'm going to show you this clip, and then wait a second, I'm going to show you that. And it, it goes forward, but there's several times where I go, oh, wait, i got to add more information. And this is one of those times where Jesus is adding more information to the story. It's a parenthetical statement. Lots of this stuff in Revelation. We'll deal with them as they come. So let's just see what John, um, or what Jesus wants to show John before he continues with the seventh seal. Verses uh, 1 and 2. We're going to just read through chapter 7 here. Just follow along with me. I'm going to get my paper so I can read it. Okay, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Okay, so Jesus is saying, hey, just, just wait a second. L let's rewind. Let me show you something else. 
I saw this, four angels standing four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. No wind might blow in the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. Okay? Saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Like, where are the four angels? Who are these four angels? What's the deal with the earth having corners? Are we, are we now uh, like square earthers? Everybody heard of flat earthers? Now we're square earthers because the earth has to have corners. Um, no, we're, it's not like that. This, this is just a very consistent use of language throughout the Bible. It's the language of sovereignty. Okay? When you see four, it represents earthly creation in total. God uses the number four to represent the earth. And when we have four angels and four corners and four winds, it's a picture of God's total control over all of the earth. Right? God's, there's no winds that I'm not in charge of. There's no corner of the earth that I am not sovereign over is the point here. God's, God's in charge, and he says to these four angels holding the four he says to the all of the power holding all of the judgment all of the harm that's about to be unleashed on the earth he's like wait nothing from you yet is what his point is no there's no sneaking out anything here i'm sealing it all up until i'm ready he's got something he wants to do before he continues you can see that um These guys play into the story a little bit later. In Revelation chapter 9, when we're into into the trumpet section, um, God says this to uh, these uh, angels. Uh, They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. So uh, there's these guys who have the seal of God on their foreheads. They're protected from the harm that's going to fall on the earth. And we have that referenced here in Revelation 9 and in Revelation chapter 7. He's going to protect them because they have a seal on their foreheads. Notice that in verse uh, chapter 7, sorry. Do not harm the earth or the sea until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, the 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There's another story in the Old Testament. Okay, it's in Ezekiel. It's in Ezekiel chapter 9. And um, we're going to read that. Just, to, and just let me read a little bit of that just to give you an idea of what's happening here. This is the Old Testament. This is when um, God's glory is about to leave Israel for good until the end. For Ezekiel chapter 9 says, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice. Um, this is the same character that John is seeing here in Revelation the, and the same character that Daniel saw. This is the um, angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. He says, then he, then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, Bring near the executioners of the city. God's judgment is about to fall. And each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood before the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord, sorry, and now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested and the threshold of the, it just means, okay, the glory of the Lord has left the temple. It's moving out. 
And he called to the man, as, as the glory leaves, the glory calls to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed to it, committed in it. He's like, put a mark on the ones who are sorry for their sin. That's where you put the mark. And the others, and to the others he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. Well, this is a very similar story right here in another era of judgment. God is going to set his mark, his seal of protection on his people. 144,000 of them, apparently. Now... Are these numbers literal? If you uh, Google that uh, today, you'll get 10,000 different answers and 10,000 different opinions of why they're little or literal or why they're not or where they're both. Okay, here's the answer. Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay, I don't know. Maybe it's literal. But for sure, it has meaning. Whether it's literal or not, it for sure has mean something. 12 is the number of completeness. Okay, there's 12 disciples. There's 12 tribes. There's 12 sons. 12 is the number of completeness. Of, it's the number of rightness. of Not holiness, just, just right. The way things should be is what it is. The idea is here, um, when God is saying 144,000, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, maybe it is exactly that. I don't know. God can do anything. He knows who, he's, who are his. But that's not really the main idea. It's, it's the idea is there's nobody's left out. Right? God knows who his people are. He has people in every tribe, and he knows each one that should be sealed. He's not going to miss anyone. He's got, he's got his complete number from each tribe of Israel. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. This is the message of the Bible. God's not missing anybody. He's not going to lose even one person that he has decided to save. And here we have a remnant of God's people chosen and sealed to survive. And they will. We actually see them. They come back into the story in Revelation chapter 14. Um, I, I hope people are reading this book because if you don't understand how this goes together, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. These guys are in the story in a couple places, and it's very rich. Well, we'll come back to them, uh, I guess, if we ever get to <laughs> Revelation chapter 14. It'll be a while the way we're going. Anyway, we have a remnant of God's people chosen to survive, and they will. Okay, now let's just keep going. We're running out of time here. Revelation 9. Let's look at the next section there. Verses 9 to 17. We've touched on this a couple of weeks ago. We've, we, when we were looking at the conjunction of this with the fifth seal of the martyrdom of the end times. It says this, After I looked at, sorry, verse 9, Revelation 7, verse 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
And then one of the elders addressed me, one of the guys around the throne, addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where, and from, from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Okay. Why is this here? Why is, this, why is chapter 7 here? Why did God interrupt the story of the opening of the seal to tell us these things? Why did Jesus want us to show, want to show us this before he goes on? With the harm, before he goes on with all the harm that is about, with all, all the stuff that's coming on the earth that's going to fall from heaven. Well, here's why, I think, anyway. He's going to answer the question that he left us with at the end of chapter 6, at the end of the sixth seal. Read, what's, what's the question that Jesus leaves at the end of the sixth seal? We can read it. I can if I open my Bible. There we go. So when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Again, this is the same things that he said in Matthew 24. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath is come. And who can stand? That's the question. <laughs> who's who's going to live through this, right? Who's going to stand up through this? <laughs> and Jesus is... Uh, Jesus is like, uh, well, I know who is. Those people who uh, hate me, uh, the, those people who hate my people, the people trembling and fear and trying to run away and hide from me and saying, who can stand? I'll tell you who can stand. These guys can stand. These 144, they're going to stand because they're mine. And the powers of heaven cannot touch them, and neither can the powers on earth. For they bear the seal of the living God, and they will stand, and they will survive on the earth. That's who's going to stand under our wrath. Gary and Allie are going to come here. But there's a second group of people who can stand here. This is amazing. Verse 9 says, right? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What, what are they doing? Standing. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And Jesus is like, hey, rulers of the earth, you want to know who can stand? Uh, I'm not only in charge of what is going, of who is going to stand on the earth right now as I seal them. They're going to be with me on Mount Zion later in the book. I am in charge of who is going to stand for eternity. That's what he's saying. And why are these people standing in heaven for eternity? Because reality is those people have been sealed too. 
Right? Everybody's sealed. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and he has anointed us, and who has put his seal on us and given us a, his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13, 14 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Ephesians 4, 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Reality is, God seals all his people, and his seals last forever. And anyone upon whom God sets his steel, seal will stand forever before him. Is Jesus Christ not awesome? That the king who left his throne in heaven to come and save his sinful, rebellious people will transform them all into a holy nation that can stand before the holiness of God clothed in the righteousness of Christ for eternity. It is is it any wonder then that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is certainly coming.